Well, hello. Long time no chat, right? So you've probably noticed that we haven't been super speedy about getting our latest episodes posted. And honestly, we haven't been really active on a lot of social media either. And really, and that's just because of life. We've had a lot of life happening for all three of us here in the last few weeks. So it's been a little tricky getting the recording and the editing and the posting and all that stuff done. We know you understand, but we just wanted to to kind of acknowledge that and let you know that we're doing our best to kind of get back on track and hopefully we'll be back in the more regular groove very soon. And know that there are a few things that we're working on kind of behind the scenes, some new things that we'd like to try and explore and launch. And we're very excited about it, but we're not quite ready to share all the details yet. I know that's kind of not fair to tease you like that, but just know that there are some things that we're working on and it turns out it's kind of hard to add more things into our schedules, but we'll get there. Just hang tight. So about this episode. First of all, we are very excited to actually get to share it with you. We had such a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Merlot, who had some wonderful insights about referring cases to the ER. We talked and we chatted and really just had a lot of fun. And we talked so much that we realized that maybe we need to split it up into two parts because it's a lot of content and we didn't really want to cut any of it out. We wanted you to be able to get all of it, but it was a little much for just one episode. So because we weren't planning on to episodes at first. There's not going to be any wins, fails, and hacks in this part one. Those are all in part two, which will hopefully be posted here very, very soon. One thing you'll also notice is at the beginning of this episode, the first several minutes of it, we had a little bit of some technical difficulties with Dr. Merlo's microphone. We did get it corrected, so the audio does improve as the episode moves forward, but we know that it is it's a little muffled, and that's just one of those things that happens, and we're veterinarians, not audio engineers, so we cleaned it up as best we could, recruited a little bit of help in that area, and we're just going to go with it. But just know it is a little muffled, but it does get better. And definitely part two, all of it is crystal clear. And I think with all of that being said, we're ready to just enjoy this episode with Dr. Jennifer Merlot and part one of referring cases to the ER. Welcome to the DVM Divas podcast. It's no secret that the veterinary profession is made up of thousands of amazing women. In fact, We're more than 60% of the current workforce, but it's also apparent that we've been struggling to stay happy and fulfilled. Well, join us, the DBM Divas, as we take this profession back from discontent. Listen as we explore the concepts that motivate us. Community. Making positive changes. Growth. Compassion. And courage. Laugh with us, cry with us. Celebrate with us as we define what it means to be a badass woman in veterinary medicine. Well, welcome, Jennifer, for joining us tonight. We love having guests on. It makes things so much more fun. So we are very appreciative of you joining us. Yes, welcome, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm a little starstruck. I listen to you guys every week, so I feel like a little bit like I'm meeting celebrities right now. So this is pretty amazing. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> I feel like we've probably already burst that bubble in like the first 10 minutes that we've been talking before we started recording. No, no way. Nope. So it's We're good. <laughs> 
Well, and Anne is not with us today. We are wishing Anne a very happy birthday. Today is her birthday. And Anne decided to spend the evening with her new hobby, taking a leisurely bike ride. But in addition to her new hobby of bike riding, Anne also had some travel plans that needed to be rearranged and could not join us today. So we are happy that she is getting to take some much needed time away, but we miss her, but we'll, we'll carry on. Happy birthday, Anne. Happy birthday. So let's just jump right in. Jennifer, you kind of approached us as and said, hey, have you guys ever thought about talking about, you know, the realities of sending cases to the ER? And you had the luxury of having the perspective from both sides, which I think is very unique. And you sent a, a document to us that kind of had a bunch of thoughts on it. And I'm curious, and I loved it, by the way, that read to me almost like a blog post or something like that. Is that something that you wrote up for like a project like that? Or was just something you were just getting your thoughts out on paper? No, I was really just getting my thoughts out on paper. I, it's something that myself and some other ER doctors have kind of talked about throughout the years as to things we see on both sides of the table that could probably make things easier for everybody. And we're like, how would we ever get this across to everybody so that people could know these things without us individually talking to every doctor we get on the phone or every time someone refers a case? So once I got addicted to your podcast, I was like, this would be a great avenue. So, and I was happy you guys are on board. So. No, it, it's, I think it's such, it's one of those things that, you know, yeah, I guess I never think about, well, one, I don't send a ton of cases to ER, not because I don't want to, but just because I don't have a, an ER real close to me. But I, you know, I think for those who do, and Maria, I think you probably do send a lot of cases to ER. Yeah. Things that I guess that never really would have necessarily occurred to me. So I think this is a great topic because I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who just kind of take for granted a lot of this stuff or have assumptions of what the other one is thinking. And so, so I send a lot of cases to the ER. I have two ERs in the town that I work in and I have an ER right next to the town that I work in. So we send a lot to specialty. We send a lot to ER and I do have some of the ER doctors relief where I work. And, you know, I've talked to them a lot about it and a lot of stuff that you wrote in here is amazing because some people don't do it. And I know that. And, you know, I try to do the majority of what you said, because when I haven't, I, I've heard, from, like, I've heard stories come back and I'm like, all right, so like to make our, my life easier, the client's life easier, that way it's not dumped on the ER that, hey, this dog has to spend $5,000 or euthanasia and they're just spending their time in the euthanasia when I could have that conversation. So this is amazing. And I do think, you know, this is great for a lot of new grads also, because when they start sending the cases to the ER, you know, this is wonderful. The other thing I love about it is, you know, it's good for the ER doctors because I have had some cases come to me when I didn't refer them. And some of the things in here weren't done, I guess you could say. So like I've gotten that also. Oh, yeah. I mean, on both sides. And I think it's very easy when you're on either side to think, oh, well, the other group always does that, you know, and it, it, there's things that could go both ways. And I mean, the biggest thing is everything I put on there was to make the client and the patient transition easier. And like, that's what I was, I'm always after is like, how can we make the client happy and the patient's time either going to the ER or back to the GP? How do we make that smoother for everybody? Because a lot of times it's really bumpy and the people that suffer are the clients and the pets, right? So 
we can make that easier, it's better for everybody. Yeah, I think what I, and we're going to go over for all of you who are listening, don't worry, we're going to get into all these points, but kind of the overall theme that I think I was picking up on was sort of communication, you know, communication with each other as the referring veterinarian, as the ER veterinarian, you know, communication with the clients on what to expect, you know, so I mean, gosh, isn't it so true for everything in life? (laughs) Communication is the key, how often we forget that. So I guess what I want to do is I kind of jotted down the little bullet points of everything. I'll just kind of start with them and then you can kind of elaborate and we'll just kind of start the conversation. So the first set of points was for kind of the ER docs recommendations to the GP doc kind of saying, if you could do these things, that would make everybody's lives so much easier. Ours, yours, and the client, and of course the patient. So first one, uh, GP doctors, please talk to your clients about costs. Yes, please, please, please. It's amazing how many times clients come through the doors of the ER and have no idea what they're looking at in terms of cost. And for some, it's not an issue, right? We, we all have those unicorn clients where they're like, it's not an issue. Although I will say when clients say money is not an issue, <laughs> a little bell off in my head, they usually don't have any. So it's not an issue. It's not a big deal at all. The ones who have the least always want to spend the most. Oh, yeah. But it makes the transition so much smoother if they have an idea. And they don't, they don't need to know the exact cost. I mean, I don't expect every referring vet to know that, you know, 24 hours of care is going to cost this exact amount of money. But if they know it's going to be more than $200 to walk in our door. Don't send the, the dog that needs back surgery if they only have, you know, $75 to spend. They can't afford a $6,000 surgery, then they don't need to come see us because it makes for an awkward situation for everyone. You know, we're the strangers in the ER. They don't know us. And it's very easy to lash out at the ER staff and doctors. We're the ones that are after money and we don't care about their pet. And then now we're stuck having this conversation about euthanasia because they don't have any other options. So it does make everybody's life easier and it sets everybody up for success if that conversation is had with someone that they trust because they don't trust me. They don't know me. They just met me. (laughs) And here I am asking them for a lot of money. (laughs) I will say a good thing to do is, so I'll give an example. I think it was last week I had a DKA and I called over to the ER that I was referring the pet to. And I said, Hey, this is what's going on. This is how the pet is. What is an estimated cost if they did everything over 24 hours? And he was like, this is what estimated if they said yes to everything over 24 hours. And this is what it would be if they said yes to everything over three to five days. And so that way I had a range of like, 2,500 to six grand. At least they went there knowing you're going to spend at least 2,500. And they were there, they went, and it was no problem. It it makes everything so much easier if they're prepared because that solves so many problems for, for everybody. And then we can actually address the reason the pet is there and try to help them instead of feeling guilty, feeling bad about having to talk to them about money, feeling maybe a little bit angry that nobody else had had that conversation um, and sort of stuck in the middle of the situation that we didn't need to be in. What I found has been helpful for me and when I'm wanting, when I'm encouraging referral or at least talking about the, the potential for referral, whether it's emergency or just referral in general is, you know, a lot of times I'll say, look, we're talking about a case. We're talking about all the diagnostics that could be run. I often will say if it were you or me and we were in the emergency room right now, 
these are the things that they would be doing to us. You know, they'd be doing the CT, they'd be doing the abdominal ultrasound. You know, there'd be all these things that would be, everybody's seen enough ER shows on TV that they kind of know some of the terminology, chest tubes and that kind of thing. You know, these were the things that we would be doing. I can't do them here but I can refer you somewhere, but this is going to be about how much it's going to cost for you to have all those things done. And sometimes even if they don't have it and they know they can't go, at least they have that number in their head and they go, you know what? That's not realistic for us. And that helps me because then they understand, okay, I can only do what I can do. It's not the Cadillac service at the ER and the specialty clinic, but we've already established that's not a reality for them and that's fine. So they're going to have to give me some grace and accept that this is plan B and we're going to do what we can do here. And to me, that's been a a useful conversation. And I can see how that would be very frustrating as an ER or a specialist to have to muddle through all of that. No, I was going to say just because they can't afford the Cadillac treatment, like even if you have that conversation and they're like, look, we can't do that, but we want to still go and have the hospitalization at least be somewhere where someone can watch. We're not going to do the advanced diagnostics. Even that is helpful to us to say, hey, look, this is their path of what they can do. Because um, I have those conversations all the time, both in GP and ER, of like, yeah, I would love to do all this stuff because I'm a doctor and I like to know things and that's what we do. But if that's not realistic, that's not realistic. And you shouldn't be out on the street homeless because you're wanting to do an MRI on your dog. Like, let's be realistic. But the more we prepare them and each other, then everybody's on the same page and it just flows better. I will say that when we refer, and I know we'll get into this later, as a GP, I call the ER and say, hey, this is what I have. This is what's coming. This is when they're going to be there. And, you know, we have the conversation with the ER doctor. I have had ER vets like, hey, this is the estimated cost. Can you please talk about it before you come? I've also had the ER doctors go, do they have money? So my ask is, I appreciate the fact, and I completely understand your job, hey, I'm not an ER doctor. I would not be able to do it. I am not good at it. And I get it's under a lot of stress, but I will do what I can to help. Just don't snap at me. Oh, I 150% agree. (laughs) Any ER doctor, yes, absolutely appreciate the fact you say, hey, talk to them about cost. Just be nice. And the GPs, just be nice. There's definitely more diplomatic ways to ask it than than that. I can speak for all the ER doctors, but, but... I do try to be diplomatic. Not all of us, but I I would imagine when you're eight cases into the night and everything's been dying and everything's been sucking and nobody's had any money, you're just like, oh, I can't do it again. I'm sure who I'm sure the doctor that said that to me probably had about five referrals (laughs) and none of them had any money and no GB talked to them about it. Everybody was circling the drain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I appreciate that. So our, your second point was, uh, general practitioners, please don't guarantee that a certain test or procedure is going to happen because you don't know that. <laughs> yes. So just like as ER doctors, we don't know what your day has been like, but the other side holds true. And I don't know if it's something coming out of academia. Like I, I don't remember what it was like in vet school because that was a while ago. But, you know, I felt like the specialists were there all the time, and maybe that's just sort of what's, like, in your head that they're just there. At the ER and specialty hospitals I have worked at, they are not there all the time. In fact, many of them are gone at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So the things that come in at 5 p.m. are really not an emergency for them at that point because they are home. 
I think there's this false sense that if a service is on call, that they are just living at the hospital waiting. Like, yeah, please send all the ultrasounds because we're, we're just lining them up and doing them now. But I have a lot of clients that show up saying, well, I was told the cardiologist would be here ready to look at my dog that's in heart failure. And they're like, that's not going to happen today. And, you know, so again, puts the now strange money-grubbing ER doctor in a very awkward position to say that that's not going to happen and your pet has to stay and have it done another time. So, yeah. No, they're, they're out golfing. They're out waxing their Corvette. They're not available right now. <laughs> There are times when we wish they were right there, ready to be because we're trying to get them on the phone to say this needs to happen now. But more times than not, it, it's not going to happen when your client arrives. At the- I think the biggest thing is the GPs do need to tell you know the clients that if it's getting close to that time and they didn't call over and see if the specialist is there, hey, your pet needs to be hospitalized tonight. Go. If they're not available, they'll at least hospitalize, monitor, start whatever treatment they can. And if it's an emergency and they need it now, they can maybe call somebody in. I have done that. I've also called multiple hospitals and sent out to UPenn when I could, really couldn't find anybody um, and they needed to be done now. But think where I live, it's a million hospitals. So I, I know Melissa has a whole different story. Like I typically don't have that big of an issue because honestly, I swear I call and there's a specialist there every time I call. They are living there. <laughs> Again, I think it's the location that there's so many of them, but that shouldn't be the expectation. It's just like with burnout with GPs, with ER doctors, specialists can get it too. And I think it's setting the clients up for the expectation. Yes. This is what I recommend your name. The ER doctor may recommend something else and the specialist might not be there to do it. Right, exactly. So point number three, if you have run a test and you have results, please send them. Jennifer, question for you. Would you rather them go with the client or faxed over or emailed? Either way. So I would say email and or send with the client, preferably both because clients somehow lose things between the one hospital and the other. I, I don't know what happens, um, but they do tend to lose them. But as long as a copy gets to me, that is fantastic. What I've seen happen is the case that comes to me on a Friday night that was at the vet that morning that had blood pulled and sent out that won't be back until Monday. And of course, the client is like, well, we just had blood work done this morning. I don't want to do that again. And it's like, you're right. I don't disagree with you. So yeah, like if you think it's going to come to us, or there is any inclination that it should come to the ER. Maybe just do the blood work in-house, or if you don't have that capability, just say, like, look, there's no point in doing it here. If you're going to end up over there, let's just send you there, and they can do it there. The same thing with x-rays. It doesn't help to do x-rays and then not send a copy of the x-rays so that we can see them, or a report from an ultrasound or something to give us an idea of what was seen, because the clients don't remember or they make up like this fabricated story. <laughs> or somehow they had an ultrasound, but in their mind they had a CAT scan. And- yeah, they have no idea. Like you said, they certainly are not going to appreciate paying for something twice. So that kind of leads into the next point of if you can start a workup, go ahead and start. You know, if they can't get down there right away, or if you can do the test in-house and have confidence in the, in the results, then do it. Absolutely. There's no all or nothing. And I think a lot of times 
um, people think, well, if I'm going to send it to the ER, there's no point in me doing anything because they're just going to repeat it. I've heard that from people. Well, you're, well, you guys are just going to repeat everything I do anyway. I don't repeat things. I can't speak for everybody, but if the tests help me and provide me with the information, I don't need to repeat them. If you want to do the x-rays and find out, yep, it's a foreign body and it is right there mid-jejun and mid-need surgery, but my afternoon is booked, go right ahead. It saves them money, shortens the time they're with us, and we can just say, yep, there it is. Got to go to surgery. Let's go. So it, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Um, I know lots of, of GPs in my area that do awesome workups that do everything they can on their end and then send it when it's appropriate. And I just take over from there and keep going. Um, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's good advice. I will say there are some times I don't work at all up and it's only because I'm slammed. And I feel bad sometimes because then I'm like pushing it off on somebody else. But sometimes I don't even have enough text to do it. And then also kind of transitions this next one also is it kind of in that same theme of place the catheter and start the fluids. <laughs> Please. Place the catheter and start the fluids. If they are shocky, if they need fluids, get them stable before they come. There is no help to me if a unstable patient presents to me. If it was flat out at your office, Make it less flat out so when it gets to <laughs> Breathe a little bit of life into it, just a little bit. <laughs> put a catheter in it. Put a big catheter in it. Um, try to go as big as you can, um, which I know is hard sometimes, and get some fluids into it. Fluids and pain meds, those are never going to be a bad thing. Right. Fluids and pain meds are always good. When you had, you made a little comment in their, your catheter section about shaving the hair all around the leg. <laughs> Shaving the hair all the way around, when you go to take their catheter out, it's so much nicer for them, for everyone, for the person holding, for the person removing the tape. Um, all of it is so much nicer, <laughs> especially if they have long hair. Like, nobody wants to pull, like, the offy, you know, hair from under the leg as they're screaming. It, it takes another 10 seconds to go all the way around their leg, and it's just, it looks nicer, and it's Okay, now tell me the truth. Are there times when you look at catheters and tape jobs and go, what the heck were they thinking? <laughs> no, because no one lets me sleep in a catheter because I'm a doctor and literally uh, laughed at me and they're like, what are you doing, Merlo? Like, I'm like, I don't know. It's got to go in. I put some tape. <laughs> you know, you guys do it. No, I don't. Um, I can't speak for everybody. <laughs> All right. So next item, if you plan on the ER discharging your patient, please send the discharge instructions. Discharges and any meds that you want them to go home with, because it goes back to that thought again, like you don't know what the ER doctor is going to be doing all day. Right. And we have no problem taking a post-op case and observing it overnight for you. Absolutely no issue with that at all. But our primary job when we're there is receiving and triaging emergencies. Most of the time, we don't have time to sit down and write spay discharges or neuter discharges or whatever the case may be, or try to figure out, do I think they wanted carprofen for five days or three days? Or like, do they send antibiotics home? Do they not? So it just makes everybody, everybody's job easier. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> not every case they have sent cases. I was like, to the ER and then <laughs> didn't send that. They were like, I'm like, they'll send it home if you don't worry. <laughs> See, we're learning. We're all learning. There you go. Apologize to any ER vet that I did that to. 
all the reason that we are doing this. We're getting the message out. Exactly. So I'm going to go to, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but call first. Yes. The key here is communication. Again, most of the time we want to talk to the doctor and find out what your thoughts are. What are you seeing on your end? What is your plan? What were your thoughts? What were your differentials? Because again, you guys saw it maybe when it was at its worst, you stabilized it. Now I'm going to see it. What have you talked to the client about? What are their expectations? Again, the financial part of it. But then also, like, what if the ER doctor's in surgery? Like, what if they just went in on a GDV or just went in on a C-section and the staff is like, it's going to be an hour and a half before she's back out. If it's critical and it needs a doctor in the next hour and a half, we might want to think of a different place to send it because that ER doctor is not going to be available for a little while. And the last thing you want is for your client to show up in distress and then sitting there waiting when a phone call may have avoided some of that. Or, you know, if I am going into a surgery and what you're sending is stable, I can tell my staff when it gets here, I want you guys to do this, this, and this. Go ahead and talk to the owner. I can call them when I get out of surgery if they want to head home. You know, this is what they're prepared to spend. Go ahead, get them to sign an estimate. I'll call them when I'm out of surgery and look at their pet. Um, and that way, again, they're not sitting. And right now with COVID, they'd be sitting in their car in the parking lot for <laughs> an hour and a half. So yeah. So again, just, just calling because we do like a lot of times we want to hear from you. And with that, please doctors call. Reception um, are wonderful. CSR staff is great. Technical staff is great. They don't always have the answers that, that we want. Um, and they can't always tell us what you were thinking. And maybe they weren't present for the conversation that you had with the owner. Um, so the more information we get from you, doctor to doctor, it's just easier for everybody. Yeah. And that may mean, you know, having to pause in your caseload. That may mean taking that time. There's, there's going to be times when it's going to be inconvenient for you as the general practitioner, but, but in the long run, it'll be worth it for everybody. You know, I've read some kind of horror stories of some emergency referral, referring doc relationships that have been trashed, you know, because the client had one story, the ER doctor heard that version. That's not what the referring vet said at all. And there was never any communication between referring and ER. And so what, what do you expect is going to happen in that scenario? So you want to maybe avoid a really bad negative online trashing by a client <laughs> that knows nothing about the scenario. Talk before the pet gets there, not afterwards. I'll even say this along even with the ER, like I call for every ER case that I send from my hospital. So anything that I have in the hospital, I call right before I say, hey, this is when they're going to get there. I also call for cases that are going to specialists that they have the appointment. So if I tell them when you make the appointment, let me know, I will call them. And I do it because I want them to hear from me what I told them. Because I have had way too many times where the client says, oh, she said this. And I'm like, that never happened because they fabricate stories. So I always call just so that way everybody's on the scene. Yep. And it's also good because, you know, we can then say like, what workup have you done? And if you, if you've been slammed and you're like, look, I know I should have done this, this, and this, but I just don't have the time right now. And I'm not trying to, you know, dump a case on you guys, but I just don't have the time then we're going to be way more understanding. We, um, we've gotten a chance to talk to you. It's when we don't have that communication that people's minds wander and assume and are just kind of like, why did they send me this case and didn't do anything? And, you know, so again, smooths over all those edges and nobody has to be cranking at anybody. And it takes five minutes. 
It does. It literally takes five minutes. I'm not asking for a dissertation. I just need like a couple minutes of history of like what your thoughts are. Yeah. What did you do? What's your plan? Okay, great. We'll take it from here. Have a good day. <laughs> so the next one was and in conjunction with calling in first, maybe you just call for some advice because there maybe there is something you can do in your general practice that doesn't have to go to the ER. I was always kind of lived in this world where I romanticized the ER doctors. Like they were like the like really cool kids who did all the fun procedures and like they knew everything. And so when I was starting out and in GP, I had never seen a pericardial effusion before. I had a dog come in, you know, an older lab, collapsed on his walk, comes in and I, I took some chest films. He has this big heart. I can't get him out of VTAC. And I'm thinking, okay, what am I missing here? You know, called the ER to be like, what do I do? And the ER doctor who I still know to this day was like, I think this is what you're dealing with. Do you have an ultrasound? I'll walk you through looking for the, you know, pericardial effusion. Okay, we found it. This is how you tap it. And he sat there on the phone with me wow. and was so nice about it. Now, will we always be able to do that? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and may not always be willing to do that. But we can definitely give advice over the phone of like, hey, that sounds like this. This is what I would do if I were seeing it. You know, that'll get it more stable for you and then try to send it. Or, hey, that sounds really awful and I don't think it's going to make the car ride to me. This is what I would do on your end and give it a few hours and then call me back. And sometimes we don't know either. Sometimes I've gotten the calls where I'm like, huh, that's a weird case. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Please don't send it to me. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so... Um, but it just helps. And especially for solo practitioners, like just calling and talking it over with somebody. Sometimes we'll have seen that case before um, and we can help you out. I think most people in this field are very helpful to each other. I think most ER doctors are, are pretty helpful to the GPs and want to keep those relationships because again, we have the clients, the pet owners, but then we have our clients, the referring vets. And so the more we help you, the more you guys are going to help us and send us cases. I think the biggest thing is also that people can't be afraid to ask the questions. Can't be afraid to not know something. Right. You know? Yes. I call them all the time. I have this going on and I've been out for how long? So, you know, you can't, no question is stupid. I mean, I go to the specialists all the time when I work ER and I'm like, uh, yeah, this case is weird. Um, what do you think? Um, I don't know what to do with these electrolytes or, you know, this whatever. And they're helpful. I mean, it's the same thing. It's not unique. I know it's not unique, but my situation is when I'm sending to referral or to emergency, it's to my alma mater vet school. And often I am talking to my actual clinicians, many who are still there. And it's been 17 years and I still revert back to that fourth year student. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> You're like, I should know this. I'm supposed to know this. You taught me this. Hang on. <laughs> I do. It's so funny. I'm almost 43 years old and I turn into this quivering like vet student again. And <laughs> I can't even bring myself to call them by their first names. I still call them <laughs> Dr fill in the blank. It's just funny how that just sort of, it all comes back. So like, oh yeah, they're like, well, did you do what I told you to do in lecture 36 of third year physiology? You say, let me go grab my notes real quick. I'll be right back. <laughs> if you still have them. If you still have yeah. them, which yeah. I do not. <laughs> 
Well, and then kind of going back to the one that we didn't necessarily, we, I kind of skipped over, but I want to go back to is supporting your ER doc. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Jennifer. For me, I, since I do sort of, I'm familiar with the facility that I'm sending cases to because I spent four years there and I do still know the clinicians who were there. So I, you know, I have that confidence and knowing what to tell my clients to expect and protocols and that kind of thing. Would you say that it would be beneficial to general practitioners to start developing relationships with their local ERs, maybe before you send a case in crisis, start talking to them, you know, what is an average case workup? How should I on the fly, maybe give them some heads up for costs and expectations. And, and that way you're not trying to do this one when you are behind by five cases and you have a dying animal and frantic clients respect each other and maybe start developing those relationships a little earlier. Would you say that's something that should be facilitated? Wholeheartedly. You know, I'm lucky because in the Charlotte area, there's a lot of local CE, some of it put on by the ER and specialty hospitals. They'll host a lot of the CE, um, which gives a lot of interaction between us and general practitioners. I have a little bit of a leg up because I do both GP and ER, so I've gotten to know everybody kind of in the area. But when I was primarily ER, um, that's how I met a lot of GPs face-to-face that I had talked to on the phone so many times was at local CEs and getting to know them and, and building that rapport with them so that they trusted me when they called in and knew their case was coming to see me. And I trusted them sending stuff back or when they did send me a workup, I knew it was going to be good. I know they're good doctors. Um, I know what to expect from their clientele. There's, I think, this misconception out there that ER doctors trash GPs to the clients and maybe vice versa. And and there's always going to be those instances where unfortunate things are said or misconstrued by clients or things happen. But personally speaking, I have always supported the GPs that sent cases to me. And I would hope the same thing went back the other way because we all make mistakes. We all miss things. Things change. Cases that left your hospital at 5 p.m. looking one way can arrive at the ER at 6 o'clock looking completely different and vice versa. It doesn't create any confidence in clients if we're not supporting each other. And getting to know each other outside of frantic phone call is definitely a, a good idea <laughs> for sure. Well, when I read through that list, I because I never, I mean, I don't want to say I've never considered it from the perspective of the ER doctor, but some of that was pretty eye-opening for me. It was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should... I should be more receptive to some of those things. Okay, so that brings us to the end of part one. This seemed like a good place to stop because we just talked about all of the things that ER docs wish GPs knew before referring their cases. Part two comes from the other direction. It's all of the things that general practitioners wish ER docs would know about where we're coming from on resending our cases to them. So we hope that you will tune in to part two and enjoy the rest of the episode and know that at the end of part two is once again, here are wins, fails, and hacks. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you on part two. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the DVM Divas podcast. Want to know more about us? Then visit our website at dvmdivas.com or find us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, and even LinkedIn. Just look for at DVM Divas. We can also be reached by email at admin at dvmdivas.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe. And while you're at it, rate, review, and share. Your online love really does help.
And tune in next week as we once again go beyond the stethoscope.